Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. 3.14159265358979323846264338327950288 Why are we playing this cuz it's it's Pi Day. Is it internet? It must be International Pi Day. But anyway, it's 3:14, right? March 14th. I love that. And, and one of the problems with uh, National Pie Day, big holiday here, big holiday I know for a lot of our listeners, but there really aren't that many really great uh, National Pie Day carols. There's this one. There's uh, Rockin' Around the Circle Circumference. You know, I mean, I think it's like, you know, that's a nice one. That's about it, actually. Somebody needs to write a couple of really good pie songs. Uh, all right. So today we are doing Ask or Tell Me Anything. What do I have to tell you about this? So Ask or Tell Me Anything means that you, as several people already have, call 888-720-WNPR. No limits are placed upon the subjects that you may bring up. I mean, you know, drive responsibly. I, I don't really know. I don't even know what kind of caveat I would even make if I wanted to make one. 888-720-9677. We also have, as we always do... A Mr. Carp envelope sent to me by Mr. Carp, hence the name Mr. Carp envelope. It is sealed. And if you listen to the last time we did ask or tell me anything, which I think might have been two weeks ago, I did. The only way that the Mr. Carp envelope, which contains theoretically topics, the only way that a Mr. Carp envelope can be opened is if a listener requests it. And then I may attempt to discuss one of the topics with said listener. Now, the truth is when we did this two weeks ago, I kind of choked. I mean, I, I'm, I'm <laughs> I didn't need to be told by anybody that I kind of choked. I knew I like I looked at the topics and I didn't really know what to do. And I think that that qualifies as choking. But, you know, we're going to we're going to try it again. Maybe. I mean, if you call in and ask. And then the other thing I have to tell you before we get going, we're going to go to Paula and Meriden first. So Paula, get ready, uh, is that uh, later this week, Wednesday, to be precise, we are going to do. We are going to attempt to do an episode about bumper stickers. No, we're doing an episode about bumper stickers, and but we'd love to get some listener participation, but not so much in the form of live phone calls the way we're doing it today. But you know, we might have you record something uh, like a voice memo for us, or just email us, and I could have someone read it dramatically, whatever. So if you have a good bumper sticker story, uh, if you have a good bumper sticker, if you hate bumper stickers categorically in a colorful way. Uh, um, you may, what may you do? Well, the senior producer of our show is the producer of this episode, Lily Tyson. So you can email ltyson at ctpublic.org. You'll never remember to do that. So you can email me to colin, C-O-L-I-N, at ctpublic.org. Or, yeah, that's fine. Uh, or if you if you want to call, you can call 860 275 860-275-7214. And I think you can leave a message for Lily Tyson there. I've never actually done that, but um, but I believe it's true. All right, so now, off we go. I think I've spelled out all the ground rules. we got the Mr. Carp envelope. 
We've got the bumper sticker show coming up. Here's Paula in Meriden. Hi, Paula. Hi, Colin. How are you? Just fine. Um, I have two questions, one very frivolous, the other one serious. Um, the first one was about the monkey show that you did, yep. which was very enjoyable. Um, but were you aware that Mickey Dolenz had appeared at um, Nelson Hall at the Elam Park Retirement Village in Cheshire last year? I had not realized that. Um, is there more to be said about that? Um, no, but it seems he gave a little concert, and uh, yeah, it would have been a great opportunity to maybe get an interview with him. Yes, uh, the producer of that episode, uh, Jennifer LaRue, tried everything mortally possible to get Mickey Dolenz. And, you know, we, we were actually very happy with the guests that we wound up having, but obviously getting Mickey yeah. Dolenz, who I saw perform in Pippin uh, at the Goodspeed, uh, well, Goodspeed Musicals is what it's called now, and he's had him a number of years ago, too. So he's, you know... He's no stranger to Connecticut, but um, no, I didn't know that he did that. He must yeah. there must be some personal connection. I mean, he's not going to just show up and start performing at the rec center or something. <laughs> well, no, the, uh, Nelson Hall, I guess, is an um, add-on at the village. Okay. And they, they have a lot of concerts there. Oh, okay. Um, well, yeah. I stand corrected then. All right, what is your other uh, topic? By the way, I enjoyed the Monkey Show a great deal, too. I'm so happy we did it. <laughs> I am, too. Um, this is more serious. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's sort of a, a different take on the Russia thing. Um, given your Protestant background, um, <clears throat> you may not uh, or may uh, be familiar about the Catholic apparition of Our Lady at Fatima, Portugal, in 1917, before, months before the Russian Revolution. I, I mean, I'm... I, I'm certainly familiar anyway with the Fatima phenomenon. I, I probably don't know the exact thing you're talking about. Well, it was she She showed the three little visionaries, the children, a vision of hell. Um, and this is the message was specifically about Russia. She asked for the consecration of Russia and promised that they would be converted and a period of peace would be given to the world. Um, if not, she foretold that uh, Russia would spread her errors through the world and uh, people would be uh, martyred and uh, several nations would be annihilated. And she predicted the end of uh, World War One, and predicted the um, uh, uh, start of World War Two during the reign of Pius XI. Now, I, first of all, I should tell you that we have some interest in these kinds of things because we have a, an episode coming in the not-too-distant future, also produced by Lily Tyson, about saints. And I have suggested that one of the segments should be about somebody that a lot of people thought should become a saint but didn't. I had suggested mm-hmm. Veronica Lukens, known as the seer of Bayside, um, mm-hmm. She was condemned by the church. I know. That was a big problem. I think that's one of the reasons she's not a saint is because she yeah. was condemned by the church. But, you know, and I don't mean to cast asparagus on Our Lady of Fatima, but it sounds like she's produ- she's predicted that either things would work out really great with Russia or things would work out really terribly with Russia. And to me, that's, well, you know, I mean, that's kind of hedging your bet a little bit. You know? Well, what had happened was the con- people feel 
um, and there's large factions of, you know, Fatima associations and things like that, that the consecration was never done or was never done properly because I guess Pope John Paul uh, did a consecration, but he consecrated the world to Our Lady. And what was specifically asked for was that Russia be named, but he did not do that. And they're not sure if any of the other popes did it. Uh, you know, they kept kicking the can down the road. So technically, I mean, what could it hurt if the pope, even if he reconsecrated Russia, uh, you know, in a reconsecration, or just do the consecration properly the way heaven asked? and see, let the chips fall where they may and see what happens. Right. Well, I mean, I do, you know, as probably most people know, uh, every couple of weeks uh, have a conference call with Pope Francis, and we usually have kind of a punch list of things we want to get through. I can definitely put this on it. Uh, I don't know how open he is to these things. I feel like he's, I don't know. I'd be surprised if, if he's going to want to go in this direction. But but I can tell that this is a matter of some importance to you. So I want to thank you uh, for calling in and and sharing it sincerely with us. Thank you. All right. I mean, I don't think this is how it's going to get fixed. But then what do I know? As she points out, I have a Protestant background. I also have a Catholic background. I mean, my my people were part of the New Britain Irish diaspora. So the only reason I'm not a Catholic is my father was a heretic. Uh, I mean, I'm not even joking about that. So, <laughs> but I mean, technically, I probably should be a Catholic, uh, in which case I'd have way more to say about this. But yeah, we are working on a show about saints because, first of all, you know, there's a saint, there's a Kennedy for sainthood who's from Waterbury, which I think is kind of a breakthrough. Uh, but I also want to talk about, I'm hoping we will talk about Veronica Lukens, who, as Paula correctly points out, was condemned by the church. Which tends to just, you know, you're just in terms of becoming a saint at that point. You're kind of hitting off the back tees. All right. I'm going to go right down the line here uh, without fear or favor. Here's Jeff from Bristol. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Colin. So I, I called in a couple weeks ago, but I was like one of the last callers, so we didn't really have uh, much time to talk. So I was hoping you could maybe uh, expand on the topic I called about, which is whether you think the progressive wing of the Democratic Party is hurting the party especially when the midterms are uh, coming up and the stake of the Senate and the Supreme Court is at stake. And specifically what I want you know, your opinion on is uh, tax policy. Um, currently, you can get um, the child tax credit if, you, if you're married and you make up to $400,000. That is the law. I'm a CPA. I know the tax law. It phases out completely if you make 400000 So up to 400 you can get something. And the progressive wing of the party doesn't even think that there should be any income limits at all, which means that someone like, you know, Jeff Bezos is, is eligible, which he actually got the child tax credit a couple of years ago. Um, and just to clarify, that $400,000 limit was part of the Trump tax cuts, which were ridiculously tilted towards the rich. But there are certain elements of the Democratic Party that is okay with having, you know, big tax benefits even for wealthier people, which I worry is, is going to hurt the party because when you ask the average American, hey, do you think someone making 400 grand um, should get free money? Because that's what the child tax credit is. It's a refundable credit. So I wanted to see if you thought that was going to hurt the party, if it's out of step with what the average American thinks uh, should be part of our tax policy. I, I, first of all, 
I want to break this into two parts, just on the tax credit itself. So the background to this, just so people know, the reason that it is worded that way is because if you if you don't do it that way, the people who need it the most don't apply for it. They don't know how to apply for it. In other words, the way the idea was to set it up so people would just get it. Uh, they they wouldn't even have to sort of figure anything out uh, because that's not, that's not no that's not true. They have to. They still have to file a return. Okay, they have to file a return. So the, but the income limits are totally separate from the process of filing a return. You can be totally in the dark. If you're poor, whether you're make you know whether the income limits are 100 or 400, that doesn't really matter. Right. Well, anyway, that's that's my understanding is that they did it that way because the research showed them that if they made it too complicated, if they if they indexed it, if they set up income limits and stuff like that, the people who needed it the most wouldn't know how to get it. Um, so that's number one. I mean, you go ahead and dispute that. That's fine. I'm just telling you that's what my understanding of it was. Now, the other part of this is 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 the progressive wing of the party conceivably hurting the democratic cause. I would say potentially yes. I mean there are ways in which they need to be heard, they need to be listened to. You know, there's ways in which our anemic response on something like climate change needs to be pushed way harder. So you no, need I agree 100%. You need the AOCs for that. Absolutely. Now, yeah. you know, people were surprised during the state of the union address when Biden said not only said don't don't defund the police, but fund the police. Uh, that would be an example of Biden veering away from a progressive position, and smartly so. I mean, it's just an idea that polls really poorly. And I'm not suggesting that public policy should be at the mercy of public opinion research, but I mean, something that really doesn't poll very well, that does not enjoy the support of a large cohort of American voters, even within the Democratic Party. The idea that they should go die on that hill, it just doesn't make any sense. So, I mean, you know, I wouldn't say categorically that the progressive wing is hurting or can hurt the Democrats at the midterms. A lot of it depends on how well they explain certain things. A lot of it depends on, on how they pick and choose. And this is something David Linhart from the Times wrote about, I think, I don't know, two to four years ago. He said, just, there's like a whole bunch of things that you you can pursue that do enjoy the support of the American public. And in some ways, you know, we're too afraid of some of the things that actually do enjoy quite a bit of support in polling. But there are also some things that are just really toxic and won't work. And defund the police would probably be one of them. So, yeah, I don't know. I hate, I hesitate to speak categorically. Uh, but I also just dropped the mouse on the floor. That's not a good thing. All right. we'll, we'll deal with that later. No, we can't deal with it later. Getting, I have to get the mouse. Hang on. Talk among yourselves. There we go. I can't put new collars up if I don't have the mouse. Um, all right. Um, Okay, here is, I don't know. Oh, okay. Yeah, I I can do this one. I I can do all of them. The rule is I can't refuse to take a caller just because I'm not sure what I would say about it. Here's Eric in Cheshire. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, Colin. Um, I'm reading a fascinating book titled Life Afterlasting, or or, I'm sorry, Life Everlasting, uh, The Animal Way of Death by Bernd. Heinrich, uh, and uh, it's about uh, what happens with uh, animals after they die, what happens in the natural world uh, with animals after they die, uh, and, and it, it's, it describes, um, it, it, it discusses uh, the role that uh, 
predators and scavengers play as undertakers, uh, basically uh, being involved with the processing of of the remains of a carcass. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, the reason why I'm calling is, uh, well, actually, I'm uh, I've just finished reading the chapter in this in this book about ravens last night, and I'm going to start uh, with the chapter on vultures, about vultures today. And I remember you're having uh, mentioned your desire to to have your remains consumed by vultures. Well, any, any bird that will have them, really. It's called an ear burial. Um, okay. and, and so my body would be placed, you know, maybe sort of in a semi-upright position on top of, say, a cliff or in one of my neighbor's yards. I'm not uh, fussy about where it is. And then the birds would come and tear my flesh away. Uh, but that is what I want, yes. Okay. So so anyway, uh, what this book uh, uh, describes is, is um, the message of this book is, is basically that in – nature there's this kind of ecological eternity where where death is never permanent uh but that life changes from one form to another it's like a kind of reincarnation uh and um uh not only are the predators and scavengers involved but also uh when uh a carcass decays it contributes uh, nutrients like carbon and nitrogen to the soil, which uh, feed plant life. Uh, so, so I, you know, when I learned several years ago in a college course about the uh, college biology course about the carbon cycle and the nitrogen cycle, you know, it, that just occurred to me that that in nature there's really no such thing as death uh, or as permanent death, and and I found it to be a very comforting thought. Uh, because, uh, you know, and, and, and had the idea that, you know, humans could, um, uh, humans to get natural burials, who choose to get natural burials, would experience this kind of, of eternity. Yeah, I mean, you, uh, could, you could, my vision is that yeah. if I get the, my air burial, which it sounds like you you support my idea for an air burial. I take absolutely, I, yeah, absolutely. That is very yeah. good news. I have a competency hearing uh, about a week. I think it's a week from today. If you'd be willing just to show up and just say a few words, I really uh, appreciate it because I feel like it might be, <laughs> but, be slicing the other way. But yeah, no, I'd like you know, I you know, every once in a while, you know, you get like a bird poop on the windshield or something, and maybe yeah. people say that's grandpa. That could be grandpa right there. I, nobody really calls me grandpa, but um, but I I uh, I think we are. Of like minds, anyway. Um, (laughs) All right, let's keep moving here. Let's keep moving. Um, Let's go to Walter and then Adrienne. And after Adrienne, if not sooner, we're going to take a break. And by the way, the number is 888-720-WNPR. As you can tell, there are any topic, any topic you bring up, uh, I am honor-bound to try to discuss with you, 888-720-9677. It need not be something in the news. It could be, you know, being consumed by vultures, which is not in the news, I don't think. Uh, All right, here is Walter. Hi, you've got the floor. Thank you. I'm pleased to call you again. I don't think it'll work out as good as it did last time with the grammar episode. You never know. You never know. I'm thinking of this Putin game as an enormous uh, 
poker game, and he's he's pushed out this uh, red chip with the big A on it for atomic power, you know. Mm-hmm. And the last time we went through this kind of a thing was back when Kennedy was in office. We had Khrushchev, the crazy madman in, in Russia. He came over. He's pounding his his uh, shoe uh, on the desk at the United Nations. His big dream was to go see Disneyland. Then he says, well, I'll, I'll send, uh, you know, uh, ballistic missiles over to Cuba. Nobody will bother me. Kennedy changed his mind by saying, you know, if, if you, you fire off an atomic weapon anywhere in the Western Hemisphere, it will be, we will respond with a, you know, a, a complete nuclear response. That's the kind of thing I think Putin has to think about. But I don't know if that's going to happen this time. Well, one article you might enjoy is in the uh, Atlantic right now. It's by Elliot Cohen, uh, um, and I forget what the title of it is. But his argument is that we are allowing uh, Putin to kind of dictate the rules of this, and that now that we are in, now that we are in at least to the level of sanctions and and, and armaments and stuff like that, we need to be more all in. And one of the things he says in that article is that it's a mistake to allow—I'm not saying that I necessarily agree with this, but uh, he says it's a mistake to allow— Newton's <laughs> Putin's playing of the nuclear card, the big red button or whatever it is that you yeah. called it, uh, to to dictate things or to be kind of uh, to have kind of a finality in in any smaller scenario because it right. means you lose every argument basically you lose every uh, every bargaining session you lose every potential strategic opportunity because you think oh we can't do that because that might set him off now I mean that has to be balanced against the fact that there does seem to be some psychological deterioration. Of yeah, Mr. We, Putin. we can't be too timid about the situation. That seems to be the way we are. Right. So there you go. You know, and 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 so Cohen makes a pretty good point that, and and I think he was specifically talking about. Let me see if I can do this from memory. I, maybe I can't, but he's specifically talking about a situation where, um, uh, where Poland was going to supply MIGs, uh, I think, to the Ukrainian uh, air force or the Ukrainian Ukrainian defense forces, uh, and there was a proposal that we uh, would replace those MIGs with. Some kind of other fighter. I, I forget what it was. It was, I think, it was F sixteen fighters. So, um, and then we backed away from it because it seemed too escalatory. Uh, and Cohen just said, "Well, no. I mean, what, once you're in the game, and once you're in the game to the extent that we're in the game, you can't start making those kinds of calculations. So this thing, and you know, and and his other point was like, how how is this?" More escalatory than some of the missiles that we're being we're making available. Uh, you know, you you can shoot down planes with those too. Uh, so how are we even making these decisions? That ultimately, once you get into a game like this, once you get into a poker game or a chess game with somebody like Putin, you better have a pretty clear understanding of what your limits are, what you're willing to do. You don't want to be making it up at a case by case basis, and you also want to go be as firm and as clear with Putin and the rest of the world as you possibly can, um, and that we're not doing that. All right. So last call of this round. This is Adrienne in West Hartford. Hi. You're on the air. Uh, hi, Colin. Thank you for taking my call again. So, I, I okay, it, I apparently in, the, in about 1990, different NATO countries, including ours, made assurances to Russia that, we would not expand NATO further eastward. 
mm. um, which which were not honored. I, I, I'm not saying that justifies anything that Putin has done. Far from it. But the interdependency that's been shown here, for example, that Europe needs gas from Russia. It, we're we we have we're required to do something now, and I think the the real thing to do is to say okay look and it could be from either side it could be um, it could be Putin or it could be Biden saying okay it's time we had a serious talk about disarmament a real right now get a nuclear disarmament get, getting rid of all our missiles I mean I think it's come to that and I think it's obviously I mean it's very clearly demonstrated that it kind of has come to that I also think it would be useful to have. Um, all the countries in the world start heaping honors on President Zelensky. And we're very, I'm very grateful that he's the person in charge right now. I mean, if we get congressional medals, medals of honor, creed or whatever in France, if, I, I think heaping a lot of honors on Zelensky would trouble Putin. That would, I think that would kind of, I think that would matter to him. Yeah, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't see him you know, wrecking his office over something like that. I mean, I think, first of all, it's hard to have a disarmament conversation with Putin right now. And it may be hard to ever have a disarmament conversation with Putin. I mean, look, his nuclear arsenal is more valuable to him than ours is to us in a way. He's ultimately, you know, you take the nukes away and he's a third or fourth rate military power, as we are seeing in Ukraine right now. So, I mean, in a way, that's his only real muscle. His incentive to get rid of any of it would be, I would expect, relatively low. What I would like to see, what I would have liked to have seen us do years and years ago, but we might as well start now, uh, is having a much more comprehensive discussion of renewable energy, uh, of solar, of wind, to some degree of nuclear, to some degree of hydrogen. Um, there's just there's a way in which this is reminding us for the umpty billionth time that we're too dependent on petroleum, we're too dependent on natural gas. Uh, and then when we get into one of these um, international crises, it winds up being a conversation that's like 40 to 60 percent about fuel, <laughs> which is not the way you want to have this conversation. You don't want to have that be the driving force. So, I mean, I have to I say this a lot, but every time I drive by a big parking lot, like, you know, in front of a shopping center or a mall or something like that, I always look at it and I think, why aren't there just solar panels over this whole parking lot? Why? Well, I mean, here it is. It's exposed to the sun. Great big, huge parking lot. Why aren't there just solar panels all over this parking lot uh, done in such a way that it creates also a roof to keep the rain and the snow off your car while you're parking there? Uh, makes it easier to get in and out of the stores. People would be happy about that. Meanwhile, you'd be collecting a tremendous amount of, of power. Uh, you'd also be powering uh, chargers for electric cars. I do think one thing that's going to happen when this whole mess is over and people have had to pay $5.50 for a gallon for gas or whatever it's going to wind up being, people are going to buy more electric cars. But, I mean, so that's good. But, I mean, why aren't we doing this much more comprehensively? All right. Way over the time limit. We'll take a little break and then we'll come back.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, Director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygen it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. on the face of the earth or the sky. Hold on to your hats, hold on to your hearts, hold on to your hopes. March into that gate and bid it open. All right. So I'm, I'm, when we do these shows, I should say, I get to pick the music. And what I've been doing lately is just picking, except for the, the pie song at the beginning. By the way, nobody has called up to talk about pie. Uh, but except for the pie song at the beginning for International Pie Day. I just picked new stuff, stuff that, you know, has really just been released. And that made me laugh, obviously, with its echoes of The Wizard of Oz. That's uh, Cecile McLaurin Salvant singing, but um, that made me laugh when I heard it. All right. So we've got calls here. Let me give you the number again, 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. Uh, and I should also say I have a topic. I do have a topic that would cause a lot of people to call up. Uh, and I haven't used it yet because people have been calling up anyway. But I may, I may be introducing it soon. And then again, I may not. You never know what I'm going to do on a show like this. But I know I'm going to talk to Stephen uh, in Coventry and Dave, who may or may not be in Orange. Or he, he may be an Orange, actually, even. Uh, I'm not sure about Dave. Uh, here's Stephen. Hi, you've got the floor. Yes, Colin. Yeah, this is uh, just a comment on the devolution of the musician in uh, the United States and in Connecticut uh, in particular. Uh, it, it, it began in the late 70s during the disco sucks period, et cetera, et cetera, when m- many musicians went to turntables and becoming DJs because they knew they could get a steady flow of income, et cetera. And then it devolved into... 10 years or 15 years ago where club owners would say to you, hey, why don't you play here for the exposure? And the exposure thing never really worked out. But now club owners have gotten the upper hand. Club owners now charge you to buy beer while you're playing on stage at an open mic night. So instead of getting paid to play music, you pay to buy beer and play music. So that's the devolution aspect of the music industry in the United States. 
How do you feel about that? Well, I feel like it's only one of the devolutions, you know, and I, I think any professional musician would, would talk about, first of all, the way in which um, this, the world of streaming uh, has drastically reduced the potential to make uh, in meaningful income from from one's recording work. So then people say, well, go on tour, then you can make the money that way. Well, you're you're pointing out some of the ways that maybe you can't make as much money. Uh, and yeah, no, it's been tough. And, and the, the musicians who have who have survived, I'm not going to say prospered, but survived, seem to be the ones, well, first of all, there's certain people who just obviously are going to be fine no matter what. Nicki Minaj is just not going to go broke. But, um, you know, the, the ones I think of our friend Jill Sobiel, who very early on realized that the old model wasn't going to work and she was going to have to do a whole lot of different things, ranging from house concerts uh, to to kind of crowd funding her albums way before other people were thinking about that, uh, getting the people who really love her music to make it a workable career for her. You know, the people who are doing that, I think, are the ones who are going to get through this. I think it's sad that people have to be uh, as strategic as they ha- have had to become. But that's the reality. I mean, there's no way to get the toothpaste back in the tube. So, so yeah, I think, you know, it sucks. And, and I love music and I love musicians. And I want them to have, you know, livable lives. I want them to be able to make money from what they do. Um, but I, I think that there's, unless you're some kind of supernova, uh, like if you're Jim Chaplin, you don't have to worry, obviously. Um, no, if you know, unless you're, you're some kind of supernova, you're going to have to think very strategically and and develop skill sets that you wouldn't have necessarily associated with being a musician, stuff like that. So, um, so yeah, that's my thought. Uh, all right, here's Dave. Uh, now, uh, we've worked it out that Dave's in Ohio, but he's from Orange. I think I have that correct. All right, Dave, that you have the floor. Correct. Yeah. Yes, sir. Thank you. You have that absolutely correct. I wish I were in Orange right now, but i uh, been living in the Midwest way too long, and my wife and I are trying to relocate back there, but it takes time. I wish I, I were know. in Orange. There's a song like that, right? Anyway, it's your, Actually, your where we want to be is Milford, but, you okay. know, we gotta, we'll have to see. Um, I remember a great program you did last summer, I think, where you had Andre Gregory on. Mm-hmm. And at, you know, 86, 87, he really still had his fastball, you know, conversationally speaking and so forth. And there was a little surprising moment at the end of the interview where he actually invited you to get together, maybe up in Cape Cod or something. I forget. I was just curious, did that occur? And if so, <laughs> what was it like? No, well, it um it did not occur. Um, I feel like, first of all, we have to acknowledge that sometimes at the end of a conversation like that, there's kind of a rush of bonhomie that you know that may not really have a lot of lasting power. So yeah, at the end, somehow or other, it was like you know, I know you're up in Truro, I'm up in Truro sometimes, and then Andre Andre Gregory, yeah, he got kind of excited about this. You know, easily as excited as he was in Demolition Man, uh, he got excited about this uh, and said, oh, yeah, well, we got to do that. It's going to be great, (laughs) which sometimes is a conversation that happens off the air. Uh, It was just unusual that it got on the air. But, I mean, it doesn't – I don't know. I was up there – I was up in one town away from Truro last September, the one vacation I've taken during the entire pandemic with my friend Scott Sherman, who's often – 
kind of considered to be a, a, a the Andre Gregory of Baltimore, as how he's often referred to. And I actually did think about that. I thought, well, he did say that. But, you know, you really don't want to be the person calling up and going, hey, remember you were on my radio show and you said we should get together and now I'm calling you. And, the guy, and Andre Gregory's going, who are you? What are you saying? Go away. Don't bother me. So I didn't want to be that person. Anyway. Oh, well. Oh, I was yes. hoping for like a my lunch with Andre. Right. We sure. could uh, maybe if I'd done that, you know, he would have gone, "Oh yeah, that was a great interview. Let's go out and have lunch. Let's be best friends." Uh, yeah, but I think could the have rewritten it and filmed it and so forth. So. Right. But I think my scenario is, uh, scenario is the more likely one, which is like, "Who? What? <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> get off, get off my lawn." Um, all right. So. Uh, the number to call, 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. I think I will mention this thing, and then I'll go to Brandon in New Britain. So one of the pieces that I thought was really interesting over the weekend was in the Washington Post. Uh, it was by Megan McArdle, um, and she had gotten kind of heuristically the impression that people were driving worse. People are driving worse during the pandemic, and then she came, came up with this theory that because the roads belonged to the less risk-averse people. In other words, the people who were maybe a little bit older, people who uh, were being more careful, staying home more, they weren't on the roads. And so the roads have been taken over by younger male people who are not as risk-averse. And so she... um, she says uh, similarly, and then she finds some numbers to back her up. Similarly, it really has gotten more dangerous to be on the road or even near a road. Americans drove about 13% fewer miles in 2020, yet fatal crashes rose by 6.8%. And we, while we don't have a comprehensive tally of fatalities in 2021, what data we do have suggests that they are still rising. Um, and e- even in places where speed limits were lowered during the pandemic. Uh, and Uh, The preliminary analysis, she writes, suggests that this was driven at least in part by a surge of risky driving behaviors, more speeding, more driving under the influence, less seatbelt use. Given the timing, it almost seems certain that this shift has something to do with pandemic conditions. Why would a pandemic cause people to start risking lives on the road? And then she comes up with this idea. Well, it's because the people who are on the road are people who are much more comfortable with risk in general. She also... (laughs) in a somewhat alarming paragraph at the end or near the end says the sudden disappearing of the sudden disappearance of risk averse and rule loving people from public spaces might also help explain other negative cultural shifts we've seen from rising crime to air rage that won't be the only explanation uh, but it raises the possibility that these developments and i think it is true that people who feel comfortable like showing up at a Board of Education meeting with no mask and screaming at their elected Board of Education members. I mean, they've kind of we've kind of turned over a lot of public spaces to these people. So she may have a point. All right. So we've got uh, calls coming in here. And um, uh, let's see. Um, Well, I said I go to Brandon first, but just because this one builds on the other call. Uh, and uh, we're going to go to Gla, I think is uh, how I say this name, in Middlefield. Hi, you have the floor. Hi, Colin. First-time caller, excited to be on your show. Um, Building on what the previous caller 
was talking about. I wanted to tell people about a great opportunity to see some live music. My band, Padera is playing at Stella Blues in New Haven on April 7th. Mm. And um, the other two bands are Zurich, Cloud Motors, and Them Airs. I think they're both uh, Connecticut-based band, Connecticut-based bands. Um, but our band, we're working on developing a never-heard-before performance. Usually it's something experimental but danceable. We've used um, electronic banjos and uh, synthesizers and a wide variety of instruments in our performances in the past. So it should be a pretty exciting show. It does sound very exciting. And uh, do you know, are you going to be charged for your beer or whatever that guy was worried about? I'm not sure about that. I'm not in charge of booking. So <laughs> okay. um, maybe I'll just ask for an herbal tea. Right. That sounds a little bit more on brand for you. Anyway, <laughs> you don't sound like a beer band somehow. What's the name of your band again? <laughs> Some of the band members do drink beer. But they're like, um, they drink craft beer, you know. Uh, um, not really. Not really. I mean, well, actually, one of our band members, Pierre, he might like craft beer. Yeah. Um, but, uh... What is the name of your band again? It's called Paderagerio, and we actually always spell the name differently. Um, but we do have an Instagram, PDG World, just, um... No underscores or anything, just PDG World. And I just posted the flyer for the show on their Instagram page. I uh, I just want to say, I really, like, at least in, in theory, I'm a big fan of your band now. Just the fact that you spell the name of your band differently every time uh, already, I'm just in love with you. I don't remember what the name of your band is, but, but whatever it is, I really like it. Uh, all right, so we have to take a break here, and then we'll come back. We've got Brandon. Who knows what, who else we've got? 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. Could probably squeeze in a few calls about whether or not, in fact, Megan McArdle is right about people's driving during the pandemic. When we met hotel reception, never, ever been so tired, you said, you bet. Guess we did what the other expected. Oh, and we're back. Um, and it's uh, time for me to thank Cat uh, Pastor. Uh, and it's also who's our technical producer today. Uh, and also time for me to thank Jonathan McPants, uh, who is uh, out in their screening calls and generally uh, being supportive uh, and telling me things, too. Like he told me, I've uh, lost it again. But, you know, I mentioned that piece by Elliot Cohen uh, in The Atlantic. And then he told me what the title of it was. And now I've lost. Here it's called America's Hesitation is Heartbreaking. That's the one that I was talking about before, about how Elliot Cohen arguing we need actually to be firmer uh, in our military resolve. Um, and then Stephen, who called up to talk about the plate of musicians now because uh, Gla was able to get uh, a little plug for her band. And he wants everybody to know that his band, Tommy O and the Bollocks, is playing at the Hungry Tiger Cafe in Manchester on St. Patty's Day. And who wouldn't want to go see Tommy O and the Bollocks <laughs> on St. Patrick's Day? I, I want to. 
Um, all right. So here we go. I, oh, I said Brandon was next, and then I put him on hold or something. What did I do? I did something bad with Brandon. Brandon from New Britain is joining us now. Hi. Or not. Or not. That could be my fault. It could be my fault that he's not there. Um, or it could be that I have the wrong thing. That's what I did. All right. Never mind. I'm, my competence is starting to drain out of me. Here's Brandon from New Britain. Hi, you're on the air. Hi. Can you hear me now? Yes. Oh, wow. It works now. It does. It's amazing. It so, yeah. yeah. Pie. What, what, my, I, I go back and forth on favorite actual pie, not not you know different ways to do pi the number you right. know you could do the fra- the fraction way the twenty two over seven but um, you know, I go back and forth between pecan pie or a really good like chocolate cream pie. Well, theoretically, no pie of that kind could possibly exist without the other kind of pie, or it would be square. That's know. true. Then it would. What would a would a pie made in the square tend to still be pie? I think it would be, but you'd have to have a sign up at the window that says our pie our square. You see what I did there? I see what you did there. I do. Yeah. I do. I see, appreciate that. But yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think you'd have to have a sign. Otherwise, somebody might think it was a cake. Right. And, and, and I think it's, platonically speaking, a fair question. Or maybe Euclidianly speaking. I told you, I said a couple of weeks ago, we're going to get Euclid on the air at some point. I mean, not as a guest, but I mean just to talk about him. And, um, you know, I think you're bringing up an interesting platonic categorical question. Is it a pie if it's, if it's not round? If it's square, is it a pie? If it's, if it's too small, if it's palm size, is it a tart? Uh, or a tort. Uh, a tart or a tort. Uh, yeah. A tort is when you get a tart wrong. So um, I, I don't know. I think I think it's an interesting question. If we had more time, that would be a good thing to build uh, to bring up at the beginning of a show. You know, does a pie have to be? <laughs> does a pie have to be around? I feel like there's something really wrong, really upsetting, even about a square pie. It just doesn't seem like something we should do. Uh, we're in enough trouble already. Um, all right. So, um, yeah, we have like, time for a couple more calls. I'll just take whoever has called in. And as they say, there are no wrong topics. Here's Michelle in Groton. Hi, you're on the air. Hello. How are you? Fine. Good. Um, I'm going to make this short because I know we're at the end of the show. But um, I've always had this sort of tumbling around in my mind, and I wanted to get someone else's take on it. Um, in public education... There is quite a bit of funding for special education um, for kids who um, have intellectual disabilities. And um, I've noticed over the years, over the decades, there has been less and less funding for talented and gifted programs. And I would argue that special education should be the entire spectrum of kids who fall to the left and to the right of the general population. So... I feel that talented and gifted programs are super underfunded and it doesn't get any attention at all. What's your take on it? Well, one thing that I can tell you is that this is not a new debate. It is a debate which I personally saw raging in, brace yourself, the 1970s. Uh, and, and, and the, I mean, the exact same conversation was being had, which is that, that in fact, um, talented and gifted programs should be um, – 
interpreted and understood very much the way other kinds of special education because the talented and gifted kids can't function in normal classes because they're easily distracted, uh, they're understimulated, so they don't do well. They underperform. Uh, they get poorer grades than they otherwise would even though they're theoretically, putatively the most talented and gifted people in the class. I, I don't think that I necessarily have a valid opinion about it at the time. I actually, because I'm so incredibly old, covered Board of Education meetings in the 1970s when this was discussed. And at the time, to be honest, at the time, and I was a young man, recently out of college, um, it it struck me as kind of a specious argument uh, that uh, because the people, the parents who were showing up there, they were saying, my kid is so brilliant and special and gifted and talented that that he's getting really bad grades. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I thought, well... (laughs) Can't be that gifted, right? But I, but I do understand the argument. Uh, I, I don't know how to resolve it. Uh, obviously, funding for education hasn't gotten any easier. You know, it's funded out of property taxes, which is a bad way to fund education. There is inevitably either not enough money or people people spending you know sixteen thousand dollars in property taxes to own an Acura or something. So. Um, you know, and if it's if it's a Sophie's choice, I think the you know sort of more traditional idea of special education needs to kind of rule the day, and we have to hope that the gifted and talented kids, because of their gifts and their talents, will prevail in some other manner. You know, I I wouldn't want to pit those two dogs against one one another in a dog fight. Um, you know, it would be nice if there was enough money to create gifted and talented programs. But, you know, if there isn't, I I know where I would put the resources. And, you know, so, yeah. But I, 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 I'm familiar, very familiar with the, the passionate concern that parents have uh, about the idea of their gifted and talented kids not getting the kind of stimulation or special kind of pro- programs that they need. I don't know. I, I find it still a hard argument to, to commit to. Um, all right. Here's John in Simsbury. John, you will be the final caller of the day, and you have to go fast because there's only a few seconds Ooh. left. Okay. Um, it's about the Ukraine situation and maybe uh, offering a, a uh, offering for for Putin. So I wanted to crowdsource it amongst the listeners. And uh, friendly neighborhood Colin is one of the best, uh, I think, uh, analysts. Uh, you're you're well-read. Uh, You're very kind, but you know what? Since we need to crowdsource it, I think we need to do it on the next show because we're essentially out of time right now. Let's bring up the music. Let's say our farewells. And thanks to everybody who did call in today. You are an interesting and diverse, dare I say, motley group. has been disconnected.